Are you an artist longing to show your work in more prolific galleries and exhibitions? Do you want to make more money from making art? We've all heard it said that success isn't about what you know, but who you know. And it's true that creative talent will get you noticed, but it's your connections that will elevate and sustain your career. But what if you're not sure how to make these connections or how to build on them? What if the very thought of networking makes you shudder? I get it. You're not alone. Pretty much every artist I've ever worked with finds this challenging. So I'm on a mission to demystify the art world and help artists conquer their fears, broaden their network and thrive financially doing what they were born to do. I know there are people out there that will love your work, enjoy talking to you about it and even open doors for you. I also know that it only takes five simple steps to build fruitful professional relationships. How do I know? Because I've taught hundreds of clients these steps and they've seen amazing results. Now it's your turn. I've created a brand new course that will teach you the five steps to making critical connections and open the door to extraordinary opportunities. Unlock Your Art World Network is a short, affordable, self-paced online course that breaks down each step with quick video lessons with me as your trusted guide, accompanied by easy-to-follow, beautifully designed, downloadable worksheets, so that with just a couple of hours each week, you'll dramatically heighten your chances of meeting key players in the art world and building mutually rewarding relationships you get lifetime access for the equivalent of just over a fiver a month. Taking control of who you introduce your work to is fundamental to a successful, sustainable creative career. So what are you waiting for? Go to kerryhan.com to buy Unlock Your Art World Network and take your art career to the next level. Welcome to the Extraordinary Creatives Podcast. I'm Kerry Hand, your host and creative coach. Join me each week as we delve into the journeys of creative trailblazers, aiming to inspire you to embrace your creativity and chart your own unique path. This week, it's my pleasure to introduce you to Dr Libby Heaney, an award-winning British visual artist with a PhD in professional research background in quantum information science. As a scientist, Libby was the recipient of the HSBC and Institute of Physics Very Early Woman in Physics Award. She worked at the University of Oxford and National University of Singapore, publishing 20 physics papers in top peer-reviewed international journals. In 2015, Libby graduated from Art College, Central St Martins in London, with a focus on AI and hybrid digital physical works. And since 2019, Libby's been entangling quantum computing with digital art through her self-written quantum code, games engine technology, video and image making. I wanted to give you a heads up as today's episode is a candid conversation and carries a content warning as we discuss classism, sexism, bullying and towards the end of the episode we discuss grief, loss, death and suicide. We chose to share this with you because we hope if you or somebody you know is or has been affected by grief and loss that we're walking alongside you. Please don't worry, we don't go into detail, but if you'd rather avoid listening, please skip the second half of the episode. Nevertheless, I hope you find Libby as inspirational as I do, as she reminds us that there is hope and magic inside us all. 
Welcome to the Extraordinary Creatives Podcast, Libby. Thank you so much for being here with me today. It's so good to be speaking to you. Yeah, super great to be here as well, Kerry. Thanks for having me. So for our listeners, would you do us the honour of just introducing yourself and tell us a little bit about where you are right now? So I'm Libby Heaney. I'm a visual artist with a background in quantum physics and I'm in my studio, uh, which is at Somerset House, um, a big old building in the centre of London. Um, yeah, in my studio, you can see some glass slimes. So I've been painting today. So literally on the table behind me is like a wet painting. Um, yeah, and there's loads of stuff here. Like, it's like a little, it's like my brain, <laughs> basically. <laughs> I such For those uh, who are listening to the podcast, it's also a visual treat for us because uh, Libby is uh, resplendent in a gorgeous pink cardigan with pink lipstick. And she also has nails that are like slime. They're like three dimensional nails. Um, so yeah, they're amazing. And they're, you're always curating your nails with your artwork, Libby. Yeah, I absolutely love that. I'm so addicted to like nail art now because I feel it's part of my practice. And I have a wonderful nail technician called Izzy Taylor, shout out. <laughs> and um, we actually like message in between my nail sets to like decide on the next set and how it's going to me message my art. And yeah, it's so much fun. Amazing. So, I love yeah. that. And whenever I see you doing your amazing talks, like the one you did at Serpentine just last night, Serpentine yeah. Gallery in London, you gave a a yep. talk didn't you and so your nails were kind of help you to get into the flow of your talks exactly and I coordinated my outfit to the nails so I had a silver shiny jacket on and then black sort of darker clothes so it matches the black and silver on my nails and I was talking about science and art so this is kind of a good representation of that on on me as well yeah yeah I love that you live your work so one of the reasons I wanted to speak with you today, Libby, is because I've been so excited and fascinated by your story and um, how you've grown as an artist. But you've got the most amazing uh, journey that you've navigated. And I find you personally an incredibly inspiring woman as well as an artist. So I wonder, would you do us the honour of introducing us to where did it all start for you? Where did your creative journey begin? Well, um, at school, or even before that, I think I was always creative. Even as a little kid, I was like painting and drawing. But I think at school, I remember because I have quite a turbulent relationship with my mom and my family. And I remember the art teachers at school. Um, so I didn't have to go home in the evenings. And so I could go and make art whenever I wanted. I actually like fenced off with like those sort of notice boards a, a section of a classroom for me so I had my own little studio there I could start wow. start making work whenever I wanted even if there's a lesson on and so on yeah so it's quite special people actually the art teachers yeah that sounds amazing so they saw something in you even then as well as supporting you with your home life they actually they could see that creativity was your 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 inner flame as it were yeah absolutely I think I think they were just really supportive and encouraging. I mean, I was always painting and drawing and sculpting and just making stuff. So they were like, yeah, we'll support that. I mean, the school was kind of chaos. So being in the art rooms was like a little sanctuary in the midst of all the And where, where was that chaotic school, Libby? Where uh, did you grow up? I grew up in a place called Tamworth, which is near Birmingham in the West Midlands. 
in the UK. That's in the UK, amazing. Yeah. And what kind of town is it? It's a working class town. Uh, it's predominantly white. Um, like there's jobs, but it is a little bit poor, and people sometimes struggle with differences or difference in general. Um, and like you know, everyone just gets really drunk on a Friday night and goes a bit like loopy, <laughs> eats a kebab and have a fight. <laughs> Okay. And so, and how was it for you as a young girl growing up in that context? Uh, I mean, it was hard for me. <laughs> it was, um, so I guess at school, um, I had some friends, but then also I was like the gobby clever one. Mm-hmm. So I, I sort of got top grades, but then would also get kicked out of lessons for disrupting other people. Um, so lots of people were a bit, didn't really like me or fed up with me. I didn't get me um yeah so yeah and how was it being the gobby clever one at home well um didn't really get on with my mom both of us were always at each other you know I think she said to me on a number of occasions that I was too clever yeah um and because I was I was quite angry um so and then that looped back around being like you're the bad kid um so it must have been hard to hear from your mum Libby oof, yeah I mean we don't speak now um mm. and I, I bless her I think she probably I don't know if I should say this but I think she probably needs some mental health support sometimes but she refuses to do that so yeah um mm-hmm. sad, sadly I've had to like set set some boundaries there so I can live my life but like mm. but it was really hard like we were we were always at like at each other and um yeah I like that's that's why as soon as I hit 18 I moved to London <laughs> just got okay. out of there yeah so. so you have this turbulent context that you're growing up somehow you survive growing up in this turbulent environment and creativity was part of your key there but also mm. obviously you were really good at school so what was it did, what did you graduate from school with for example what were you studying at the time uh, yes yeah, so for my a levels i did art mm-hmm. and but i also did physics maths and german wow what a combo right <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so you gra- you left school with those qualifications, and so you went straight to London from Tamworth. Yes, so I didn't actually go to art school um, at eighteen. As much as I would love to, I was advised by teachers, family, friends, like you're good at physics and maths, like go and study something that they, or at least what they consider serious, like something you can mm-hmm. make some money in. I think people mm-hmm. were like sort of terrified that. If I went to art school, I wouldn't make any money, um, which is a real possibility, isn't it? So, yeah. so I actually um, went and moved to London to do physics at Imperial College, which is in Kensington in London, which is one of the most affluent parts of the country. Amazing. Yeah. So you've gone from this working class industrial town, which has been in the decline of the industrial era, actually, mm-hmm. Tamworth and um pretty sort of socially economically deprived area you've been top of the class and then you've come to one of the most affluent areas in london tell me how was that a bit of a culture shock i imagine it was for many different reasons um like i'd only been to london once before actually um in total um on an art trip 
which was a lot of fun. But um, yeah, I mean, I wanted to go to Imperial because I had the grades to get in. And they also did a year in Germany. So I could like keep keep going with the same like A-levels that I did. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, but yeah, like for instance, I had a really strong Birmingham accent, which was often discriminated against. Like I was mm. called chap multiple times. I was also a little bit like feral, I suppose, in the sense that, um, you know, I drank loads and was always a bit like out there compared to a lot of the other students that I've perhaps been to like, um, you know, some of my friends went to Eton or some of the really big private schools in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was a bit like, yeah, like, who is she? What is she doing? Like I sort of came across maybe as quite stupid, even though I wasn't. Yeah. What so. made you think you came across as stupid? Because people would like sort of disown me um, or like I'd lose friends over silly things that I did. And like people who later became friends would be like, we didn't think you knew what you were doing. We didn't. I got a first in my degree. You know, mm-hmm. people were like, Nick, you got a first. I can't believe it. But I knew I was capable of doing that. But um, So they were surprised because you were a bit of a wild child. Quite wild. Yeah, I had rough edges. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, well, I think there is this difference between working class where we haven't, you know, because imagine like growing up in an environment, Kerry, where you, your main mode of communication is through argument. Yeah. But then other people haven't had that. And I've actually had like rich opportunities to meet, meet people and have deep conversations. I had mm-hmm. to learn all of that. Yeah. Yeah. So there's something about you moving into the, finding your way in this new context where you have to negotiate um, intellectual discussion and debate in a very different way. But also, um, as we can see, like um, representing yourself in this visually, this visual aesthetic, was that something that you had then? How were you dressing as part of being on that campus, that site? Yeah, I think I was like, you know, I used to go around and like, Still a bit girl, like I'm wearing pink today. There's like a bit girly girl, but with an edge. So I can remember I had like these blue shoes with little pink flowers all over. Um, yeah. And sometimes a bit like sporty or tomboy as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A mix. And how many women were doing that course, Libby? Ooh, less than 10%. I think there was about 220 odd people in the, on my in my year, just on the physics course, and maybe 20 girls. Yeah women wow. and how did that feel at the time like I don't know I mean I think for me personally it was okay at that point my undergraduate mm-hmm. it felt stranger to be working class than a woman mm-hmm. I felt more different through a class than not being I got, I get on with lads quite well you know mm-hmm. I'm into, I used to be really into football and I'm into clubbing and music and that sort of thing. But it was really strange that there's not more women on the course, of course. Mm. But and how yeah. did you survive it at the time? I think like going out clubbing in London. I was so excited to be in London. Um, mm. Finding people who like the same music as me. What um, kind of music? I, I was into, this is the noughties. So I was into like drum and bass and jungle and before that, I was into like euphoric trance. So, like, nice. proper, like, reach for the laser stuff. <laughs> Hard Why <house>. wouldn't you be? <laughs> it makes perfect sense. 
<laughs> going into beyond, yeah, something like that. But so you're navigating the context of Imperial College in the heart of London, in an affluent area, coming from this amazing working class context, and you're uh, different, and you're navigating that difference, and you're going out. I'm imagining that you had some good times at weekends. And some, and then you're coming back, and somehow you nail a first in the midst of all that. Mm-hmm. Amazing. So during that time, how, where was your creativity in in practicing science? Yeah, I mean, science at that level, science wasn't super creative. Only when you start doing your own original research does it become a bit more more creative. But I, I think I realised quickly after my first year of my degree. Mm-hmm. that I wanted to be an artist actually I'd made not a mistake as such but that was where my passion was um mm-hmm. so I was still painting and drawing throughout from from when I was like 19 stopped for maybe a year but then carried on until like I, I, later on which I'm sure we'll get to when I went back to art mm-hmm. art school but like I think I think just having that way of because like art really helps me calm down and with my mental health and everything. So I think it was mm. almost necessary to have that in the mix. Yeah. Yeah. So, but you were doing that mainly for yourself. Yeah, yeah, just for myself. Yeah. 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 But clearly, you were finding other outlets for expressing yourself and your creativity um, through connecting with people through club culture yeah. and finding a way to express yourself. Exactly. So yeah. You've graduated. And even though you've got a hunch that you really you're an artist, where does the next stage of the journey take you? Well, I had no money, so I had I couldn't go to, you know, I was still making arts, but I couldn't just go to art school. So I ended up doing um, a PhD in quantum physics at the University of Leeds. As like you, do, you do. As you do. <laughs> <laughs> but I was really, I did, um, I worked on quantum physics for my ma- uh, master's project. Um, as part because the undergrad degree I did was one of those integrated masters, so you don't get a BA, you get an M Sci in the end. Um, so I did. I'd already dabbled with it a bit, and I was fascinated about like its magical qualities and how it's a description of microscopic reality that's so far beyond what we experience in the other day. So I was like, yeah, this this could work for me. So I ended up um, going up to Leeds to do that for three years. Yeah. Amazing. Just um, use the word magical. Could you mm. expand on that for us a little bit? Yes. Like for those people who don't know, because, you know, quantum physics is quite niche, I suppose. It's um, it's a physical theory that describes microscopic reality. But rather than, you know, like if we think of physics, we think of like batteries or or like um, clocks and, you know, cannonballs being, oh God, cannonballs so in band it's the of, force is that yeah, the, force the force that you're thinking about yeah, yeah. Man. i'm thinking of like an exam paper or something that you'd get at school <laughs> that's why i said that mm. but but quantum physics is really different so like entities can be in multiple places at once so like i could be here and in paris and new york at the same time if i was microscopic um and also you have this phenomenon called quantum entanglement which is like if you have two or more particles and even if they're really far apart, they can have this mysterious connection between them. So if you influence one, the others are immediately affected. Um, and also ideas of a multiverse um, where you have many parallel realities all existing in the same place at the same time, kind of like the film, everything everywhere, all at once. 
all of these ideas come from quantum physics. And I just think that's so magical. Like the fact that our reality at its most fundamental isn't like we think it is through our senses. It's actually something else. It's non-binary. It's queer. And I think that for me, that's like such a good space for imagination. It's really, I think it's quite a creative discipline. Yeah. Yeah. Because I guess it's challenging perception on every level. Yes. So it really makes sense to me as to how, as you're talking, I'm getting lots of visuals um, that you're helping to conjure. So that makes sense to me that it's otherworldly. Yes. A, yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so we're we're with you. You've found your way through um, quantum, all things quantum. Where are we now in this stage of the journey? So after my PhD, um, so I had two, I was still a scientist. I had two positions. One was at the National University of Singapore and one was at the University of Oxford. Um, so I spent five years working as a postdoctoral fellow between the two two places, yeah. And how was that, that kind of uh, working overseas and um, managing your research, but also the different environments culturally as well as socially and politically? Like, I really like travelling and I really like Singapore. Um there's some things about the country that are very different to the UK. It's quite an authoritarian city. Um, you know, the, I have really great friends there um, who I'm still in touch with. But like, there's lots of cultural differences and you're so far from home. Yeah, it was amazing. We travelled a lot. I say we, myself and friends, travelled a lot. Food there is so good. Mm. Um, but yeah, sometimes it felt quite alienating and um like how do you describe it when you're like lonely Mm. like the politics I sometimes I find like when you're somewhere else maybe you get this but actually you're not as invested as in the politics as if you would be where you're from so I'm from I'm from the UK so I'm very invested here whereas overseas I'm not so like invested in the politics there Mm -hmm. yeah and was it another a sort of male oriented sort of environment for you studying there? Yeah. So up in Oxford actually, um, where I was for a couple of years, um, I was the only woman across two research groups. And that was really tough. People were not everyone, but a lot of the academics were very competitive, unforgiving of diff sometimes unforgiving of difference very logical could be quite cold but also their behavior sometimes particularly like with women in their 20s it's a gray area yeah and in Singapore as well there's a lot of in academia there's not so many boundaries right there's no HR department that governs things like in business yeah Mm. so so when you say gray area do you mean okay um, so I can give an example, a personal example, which I don't really speak about very much. But for instance, in Singapore, there was a male colleague, my peer, who used to kind of, hum- I suppose, humiliate me. He would at lunchtime throw ice cubes down my top. Wow. Yeah. And he would grab my cheek and like, you know, what I'm doing now, like, like, like and be like, it's all right. And Like you're it- a child. Exactly. And if you said to stop, it would be like a joke among everyone. It's bullying. Yeah. yeah. Patronising and bullying. Yeah, it's bullying. Yeah. 
Yeah, so, um, and that's difficult because there's no one to go to to talk about that. Mm. Yeah. So what impact did that have on you sort of emotionally, but also intellectually? Yeah, exactly. Emotionally, really bad. It really messed me up. Like, it was like I couldn't escape at work. So I started doing therapy, actually, not just because of that. Some obviously I had stuff to deal with from my childhood, but mm. that was part of it as well. Intellectually, undermines your voice. Um, it makes you and and actually other friends that are women who used to be in physics had different but similar experiences. Mm. So you talk and you in the end you're like, what is the point of being here? Yeah. At some point, that's not why I went back to art. Like went to back to university to study art. But yes. you are a bit like, what the hell is this? Yeah. yeah. It's hardly an encouraging and uh, a space where you want to flourish yeah. and participate. Um, so how do you feel in terms of looking back and looking at that young woman who was clearly incredibly smart, potentially um, uh, or like an outsider, I guess, operating, um, but tackling really interesting, cutting edge ideas. What would you say to that young woman now? Oh, I would like say to her, well, first of all, don't take no shit. Yeah. Because <laughs> I feel like my, you know, when I don't know if you've ever had this, but when your mind is, when you're quite anxious, you're a bit scared to do, take action because you're preempting negative response you can't see a way out it's a bit like a labyrinth yes but I, I I would probably say to her take a break like go home although I didn't it's just a problem because going home didn't feel very good either so I always felt a bit lost um but I'd say like keep going and it will be all right like but I think I knew that deep in me as well yes you know I knew what I wanted to do I knew what my passion was art I was just saving up money all yeah. throughout that to be able to go to art school so I think yeah. that's what kept me going as well knowing hope knowing what I wanted to do yeah because not everyone has that as well no yeah. Libby did you have any mentors or champions at the time Singapore um I mean there's always people who partially championed me I say partially because academically they would always be there for me if I needed a job yeah. which I did once I quit physics went to work for a hedge fund for three months and then went needed a, I hated it quit went back to physics I was like can I have a job in Singapore he's like yeah you can have a job back here but in terms of the social things like I described the ice cubes and the pinching the cheek it was all seen as a bit of a joke between the lads mm. so um I had really good friends yeah yeah and I think that's always like been my like friends who knew me from school. So they understood like what my family was like and then new friends in Singapore. Or, yeah. So mm. and and like elsewhere as well. And they, if they ever listen to this, they knew, know who they are. Yeah. You know, and that's that really helped. Yeah. And did music play a part in your um, finding your tribe there too? Yeah, man. Um <laughs> Of course. So I was 25 and was like, if I don't make any friends outside of science, I'm going to just be not with the right people. So I kind of put myself out there, out, out there a bit, like as in, 
just sort of met made local friends who were part of the music scene in Singapore so like as in not expats like actual um people who had grown up there and were uh, promoting and DJing drum and bass and different type of music and that was a lot of fun yeah, yeah. it's good time Brilliant. so it's, it strikes me of the the courage that it took to be a young woman in a completely different city um, and finding their way. And I'm curious, looking back, what do you think it was that gave you the courage to get through that time? Courage. Um, sometimes I didn't feel like I had courage, yeah. Um, but like, like knowing that I could, I mean, it's a bit of everything, isn't it? It's like knowing that if you just, if I was with the right people and the right friends, it was all right. Mm. Um I was luckily, I was, I was relatively good at, I say relatively, I was good at what I did, but I didn't put my all into the physics because I was still making art. I was still doing other stuff. So it wasn't like, like some scientists just, oh, that's all they do. They don't have a social life. That wasn't yes. me. Yeah. But I think, yes, carry on. No, so you find some some support through friendships and music and knowing that you have this other burning passion, which is your art and your creativity. So something in you knows that actually you're walking towards something different. Is that? Yes. Yeah. Exactly. And it was just a matter of time to save up the money to be able to, I always was like, I'm going back to art school. I'm going to quit physics when I've got enough money to do that. So it's a matter of resources. Yeah. And you did get enough money, right? I had probably had enough for a house deposit back then, not anymore, but like, and I just spanked it all on art school. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. So at what, what point, how did you decide which art school you wanted to go to? Well, there's, um, my friend Claire actually said, you don't need to do a BA, you just go straight in with an MA because you've already done so much academia and da, da, da. You're probably, if you put all your drawings and paintings together in some sort of portfolio, you could probably go in at that level, which was a revelation to me. I was like, oh, wow, because it's so much cheaper than the BA mm. and less time. So I um, found the MA at St. Martin's, the MA Art and Science, which is like, wow, you know, that seems like the right right course for me. That's back in that. London, right? Central St. Martin's. Exactly, London. back in London, yeah. 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 So... You've you've finally made it to art college after all this experience um, and a degree and a PhD, and then you're back to do an MA finally at art college. Yeah. So how was it hitting art college after all your experiences so far? It was, it was mixed as well. Uh, I wish it was in my head. It was going to be like Nirvana. Now, I think anyone who's been to art college in the UK in the last, since the tours have been in power knows it's not Nevada. There's a lot of problems in the UK education system. But um, I did really enjoy making things freely. Um, and, but yeah, I had to unlearn, you know, working in science was like indoctrinated into the scientific method, um, this way of thinking very logically about the world. Whereas, so, but, to be an artist, I was like, I think sometimes I'm still am unlearning that. Yeah. So that's about um, changing up your process mm. for discovery is mm -hmm. one thing, as well as having a material practice where you're learning somatically through 
applying yourself to the materials as well as the ideas and the concepts. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And what kind of things were you making initially on the MA? I was working a lot with um, physical computing, actually. So like robotics, not not robots, but sensors and kinetic sculptures. But they were very physical. They were um, like these sculptures were like, all like I remember for my degree show, (laughs) I was like, I had like 96 motors and a connect sensor tracking people in the space, but the actual sculpture was all made out of paper, paint, drawing, and a, a hand-woven linen net. Uh, it was all about quantum computing. Um, people moved around in front of it and it rearranged itself kind of based on their movement, but semi-automatically as well. Wow, was, so you really went there. I went there. <laughs> yeah. it, it was a beast, Wait. yeah, but... Amazing. And how was it received at the time? Yeah, I I think, I I mean, yeah, in hindsight, I should have. Quantum computing, quantum computers didn't exist then. I think they sort of, companies like IBM started to build or release their first ones two or three years afterwards. Um, so people didn't really know what it was. I mean, people liked it, but they didn't know what it was. And I think my way of explaining it was still too technical at that point. Yeah. I see. So you were illustrating what you'd done, like telling them kind of telling them how you'd done something. Is that right? I, think I just didn't say that much. Um, yeah, I think like, I mean, I, re- I received like a distinction for my MA. So obviously the tutors appreciated what I was doing but for the general public at the degree show like I think there's just a small amount of text I mean actually I felt really anxious so quite often I wouldn't be there I know that's bad practice but like you know when you've put so much work into something and you don't you just need to go and rest and be in the bath for like a week yeah. or something so, yeah. yeah so but when you're on this MA and you've clearly applied yourself, like you seem to have applied yourself to all of these contexts, which awesome. is going going full on all in, um, oh, fuck, oh, yeah. in some shape or form, you created an incredible installation. And so although it was a challenging uh, context yet again, who were your allies and uh, what helped you through that time? I think the tutors were great. Um, I think some of my classmates didn't really know what to do with me. You know, as a scientist, like, why is there a scientist here? Like, why, why, why is she making art? Can she even make art? Like, what is this? Um, but yeah, like, I mean, uh, friend, like, mostly like friends supporting me. And yeah, I was really happy to be back in London as well. Um, I felt like I'd come home as well, yeah. So you've claimed your space as an artist at this point. What what kind of things were you navigating at this point um, as an artist and finding your way? How did you decide what the next steps were? At this point, it wasn't... I didn't really decide what to do. I was really, you know, I ended up teaching at the Royal College of Art in London, uh, which is obviously a very prestigious, prestigious university. And um, because I think a lot of universities in the UK 
art colleges are all about interdisciplinary. So obviously mm. coming from a science background, um, I was invited to teach on the information experience design course. And what kind of happened was, like, obviously I jumped at that. I was like, oh, I've been accepted. Oh, my God, that's amazing. But teaching, you want to do a good job. You know, as we've, as, as we've discussed, like, you know, whenever I do something, I'm always like, I'm going to do a good job. Yeah. And like, so you want to do a good job, but then teaching starts to take over more. So your practice gets squeezed into smaller and more smaller segments of time. So I was still making work, but but teaching was like the majority of my week, if that makes sense. I had, I mean, in as some sense, I had to earn a living still. I couldn't just quit work and be an artist fully. I had saved up some money to go to art school, but not yeah. to live forever in London, you know. So yeah. Yeah. So that um anxiety that you needed you needed money to support yourself mm-hmm. stayed with you and was a driving force at kind of keeping you having one foot in work whilst making. So it sounds like a very sensible approach to having a sustainable creative career. Yeah. I'm curious, at what point did you start finding your voice as an artist where you really started uh, saying the things that you wanted to say? I think like my work, Lady Chatterley's Tinderbox, mm. which I made in 2016, uh, where I took, I could, I'm not a hacker, um, so I collaborated with someone who could hack Tinder and put on some AI bots that would speak to people on the Tinder dating app using text only from the novel Lady Chatterley's Lover. And they would have conversations with them. I think because I hadn't got a studio at that point, it lost at St. Martin's House, it was a very material practice, but my work kind of went more digital because. I think that's easiest when you don't have a uh, have a physical space to work in. But the work itself, if you were in a gallery, you'd see it as a series of anonymized screen grabs of conversations between these bots and yeah, Tinder other users of a Tinder dating app. Mm. I wonder, is there any connection between your experience as a young woman, as a scientist, and your your playful take on Lady Chatterley's lover? I mean, yeah, in the past, for sure, I have um, used uh, Tinder and other dating apps. Um, and they can be quite crap for women. Um, mm. So I suppose using the bot was a, an interesting way of um, distancing yourself. I mean, there's many questions the work, work brings up around ethics and um, the future of dating, the future of what it means to be human in very um, human areas like love and romance and sex and and so on. But I think Lady Chatterley's Lover is a lot about class as well. Mm. Like Lady Chatterley's like an aristocrat, whereas the gamekeeper who she has an affair with is a working class guy. So there's some a lot of these things came out through the work as well. And it was it was quite um you know, I think maybe there's a thousand conversations that the bots had with human, probably humans. And it was quite humbling, really, to read them because you had kind of like the breadth of humanity represented within them. Yeah. You so. say humbling. I guess that's because there's some revelations or something that you're understanding, like an abstraction of a personal relationship of some kind 
or a sense of a human trying to have another human relationship with somebody. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. I'm a, 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 yeah, a very strong sense of many humans, different people, women and men, trying to form connection across a technology that can often be very cold and logical. Yeah. Mm. So in that work, something, those kind of ideas of uh, a perception of class and the sense of self really started to crystallise. Yeah, yeah. And so where did that take you to? I mean, yeah, I started working more and more with AI, thinking about self, thinking about how the machine and AI changes self, I suppose, in different ways, like... um, yeah, I worked with British nurse. I worked with um, ideas around Brexit, pop culture, karaoke, AI karaoke, um, which obviously my dad owned a pub when I was little. And, um, you know, they had karaoke twice a week. I'm a terrible singer, so I didn't really <laughs> didn't really participate. But like, but it was kind of drawing on things that um, my practice was really drawing on things that I recognised. And mm. questioning those things through the lens of AI, how these might change, biases against the working class. I made a work with classes that really analyzed like how all of these uh, language models like chat GPT, I mean, it wasn't chat GPT then, because it's a yeah. while ago, but how they're really biased against the working class, um, which was quite upsetting for me, actually, because these things inform like your credit score and all sorts of like AI so permeates everything we do now. And the, and these systems really um, control how we're how we are able to move around in the world. So, was, so people had investigated this for race and uh, gender, which is really important. But I think I was one of the first people to really analyse the biases in AI systems for class. Yeah. Mm. And did that start piquing the interest of some different kinds of people? I mean, my work. Then um has, has been traveling um in the art world, different locations. So like even Lady Chatterley's Tinderbot has been exhibited across the world from Australia to Lima and Peru. Um I think I think what really piques the interest of lots of different kinds of people is actually when I started making work with quantum computing. In 2019, yeah. I think the work with AI is interesting for people, but maybe I was working with it too not too soon, but the peak is now. I feel like everyone's talking about AI now. I was doing it in like 2016, 17, and it's yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's it's interesting how it's developed. So maybe you could explain how you work with quantum in your work. How is that developed? Could you give us some visuals so that we can understand how that research is manifest in your work? Um, so, so just to say quantum computing is a new type of computer that um, is non-binary. Um, so it offers like greater possibilities compared to digital binary computers. So my interest is like, how can I use it in a non-binary way? Uh, not like big tech companies want to use it, you know, harder, faster, stronger, profit, profit, profit. I'm really interested in like, how can we show the queer nature of reality? So for instance, in a work that I've got on right at the moment at Shoreditch Arts Club 
called slime core. Um, I use a phenomenon called quantum entanglement to layer off 32 different videos all at the same time. And they all kind of haunt each other. And the content of the videos is like me um, really clipped in videos of, say, my mouth um, regurgitating slime or maybe slime on my breasts or elsewhere on my body. And that's layered with um, snails. But because they're all layered together, the videos, and different ones are kind of coming in and out of being, it's all generative something other starts to appear so it kind of looks like a portal or um i don't know like very strange very weird sort of sensuous um greens and blues and like a fingernail might appear like squeezing slime yeah or like different body parts yeah so when you say generative could you explain that a little bit more for us? Yeah, so I write the code. So I write my own code for IBM's publicly available quantum computers. And then I also write some other code to take the data that I've sort of taken from um, quantum entanglement, da, da, da. And I write my own codes to edit the videos independently of me based based on the quantum data. So basically, I, I sort of prepare all these videos, 32 different videos. I break them all down into um, individual frames and they're all in different folders. And then the code, my code takes different frames and, and sort of composites them together in a layered way. Um, so they're all combined. And then at the end, I've got like a video has come out. So I press play and then my code it's like a, it's like an automated. It's an algorithm that is like picking the different bits based on based on quantum computing. Amazing. So, how did you learn that that code would do that for you? Lots and lots of trial and error. I have it. Obviously, I'm very in. A, I'm in a very fortunate position because I have my background in quantum computing, quantum physics. Um, so I have an inkling of what might work. Um, but yeah, so I've been working with quantum computing since 2019. And in that time, I think it's like nearly 3,000 different experiments I've, I've done on. I know the number because I was working with IBM's quantum computers the other day, and you've got like a little tally of how much you've been using them. So it's almost 3,000 different experiments I've done. Wow. Yeah. And what kind of people might you need to collaborate with to get the end results? I do it all myself. This work was all myself. Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> yeah, but I do collaborate with people in other works, but this slime core was just me. Yeah. 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 Amazing. And so you showed um, that installation was across a number of different screens mm. at Shoreditch Arts Club mm. in London, wasn't it? So that it was shown on enormous screens as well as smaller screens where people could have meetings and talk and get to know each other. So this idea of entanglement or people being entangled in the work was really clear in that installation, it seemed. Yeah, absolutely, because rather than juxtaposing different footage across the screens, and that's that you have to imagine this big room and the three screens are spaced out. And actually there's also a screen that's sometimes on in the sort of reception area as well. So maybe four screens, definitely three. And um, they, they immerse the space where people, yeah, it's an arts club, so people are doing different things. But the visuals sweep all across the three screens 
sometimes and other times they're related they're entangled but different so people really have to move their bodies and feel it in their bodies to look around and to sense it yeah and that's something that you've been doing more and more of isn't it creating sensorial environments where people can experience your digital and physical works in real life yeah 100 percent um yeah, I'm really interested in um, embodiment and affect and sensation because I think, you know, the technical details of quantum are quite hard. Um, so I'm not going to lecture people. So I've been making like, I mean, you can see behind me, if you can see right up there, uh, there's some hard sculpted glass slimes trickling over the door space. Um, I've been working with my body with a movement practitioner. Um, trying to understand sensations in my body and entangling with myself, but yeah, as mm. well. And what's, what is it with slime, Libby? What's the obsession with slime oh, all I about? Love, I love slime. Mm. Um, the, mean, the meanings in my work are often quite open because I think that's quite quantum and allows different layers of um, interpretation. But um, slime, like I, I always think the quantum world is slimy, Kerry. Like like you think of atoms as being small and precise, like little little dots. But actually, mm. when you go really cold and really small, everything starts to blossom. And in reality, like the atoms and particles at that microscopic level start to behave like slime. Ish. It's a metaphor. Mm. But also, I talk about a slimy world of big tech. You know, like how big tech companies appear to be pleasant and benign, but actually they can be quite slimy, underhand, and devious. And then um, slime in relation to our human bodies and how we're actually all slimy. We, we quite often we see ourselves as separate to nature, mm. but we're not. We're part of nature, and so you know all of our orifices—our mouths, our nose, our vaginas—everything is slimy, mucus-filled. And I just think I'm sort of celebrating that and highlighting it. It's partly ecological, partly philosophical. Um, and play very playful as well. And you, you were saying that you were actually there were some films of uh, things pouring from your mouth, and um, as you were talking, then you kind of touched your stomach as you were talking, and that's something that you've been investigating um, just in your upcoming work. I think Can you tell us a little bit about where those ideas come from. Yeah, so. I had, I started a research, so I'm making a work right at the moment, and I'll take you on a little journey about what I've been doing so far. Um, I had quite an intellectual question to start with. Um, how can we entangle deeper with ourselves to therefore entangle with others? So I started working with a movement practitioner, Naomi Annan, who's wonderful. And um, uh, she teaches yoga as well, but we weren't doing yoga. We were kind of working with a squidgy 30 centimeter Pilates ball, kind of putting it in different parts of our bodies and understanding interoception. And I started becoming, um, I guess, obsessed with my tummy. There was a lot of feeling there and I didn't really understand what it was. I'd go home after our sessions and do loads of free drawing. And um, yeah, I was holding a lot of grief there um, about my sister who passed away in 2019 yeah so um so the work changed from being something quite intellectual mm. to something very personal which is is 
new for me to go this personal yeah and mm. um it's been it's an amazing project with so much meaning and I think it's opening up new doors in my practice so the work now is about um suicide as well and about how quantum physics can bring some hope and magic around what it means to live and die um yeah Thank you for sharing that, Libby. And um, it's an incredibly challenging thing that you've come through. Mm. And so fascinating for so many of us to learn that we store our feelings and emotions in our body. And, you know, even as you're talking and I was holding my stomach in return, um, you know, as I'm as I'm watching and listening to you. But I'm grateful for you sharing the story of how you're processing the death of your sister and how that's coming through the work, because there is something in us all learning to live with grief at some point. And you know that um, I share my own story in having gone through grief many times in my life at a very young age, too. It's only as you get older that you learn where you store thing in your body but also in your heart and in your mind and that actually the idea that we can avoid it or repress it or lock it away somewhere is just a kind of nonsense hey mm. so I'm curious in that sort of locating where the grief was being stored that somehow you've still found a desire to work through it and to share and to be vulnerable with others but also that you are looking for hope to find some kind of magic and joy through it. How have you helped yourself to work through through to get to that point? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm able to make this work now because I have really good support systems in place. Mm. Um, I'm fortunate that like, my practice is going really well and I'm a full-time artist, so I've got this time and space to make the work. Um, I've done therapy as well, of course, around what happened and 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 everything. Um, but yeah, I'm like, I mean, I'm still learning as well. I I make work, so I'm I'm really painting and drawing, even though the work will manifest as um, a VR experience with painting and sculptural furniture. TBC, the details, but it's all coming out. I've been going really into myself mm. and writing a lot, writing to my sister, expressing mm. the full range of emotions like anger, anger at myself, anger at her, total fucking devastation. Mm. But then also finding hope because I just feel like there's more to, like, you know, there's more to this world. We spoke about magic writers towards the start. Mm. There's more to this thing we call life and this world that we live in that meets the eye I know that because I've, I've studied it and and I think a lot of people intuit it especially artists so I'm kind of going through it and I'm like expressing the emotions but then asking like yeah and what else what what else could there be you know sometimes Sally my sister comes to me it's so real and I really feel about mm. um in different ways, not like in the traditional seance way, in my our own personal ways. And yeah, I think it's really like changed. It changed me. 
yeah, not in necessarily a bad way, but but grief, really, really hard, like strong grief and working through it. Uh, not, I don't want to say, it just like makes you pre- obviously appreciate life, but question things way more, question reality and life and what it means to be here way more deeply. Does that make sense? Yeah, total yeah. sense. Um, I lost my um, dad when I was just uh, 19, actually about to go to art college. So um, actually went to art college in Bradford two months after my dad died. And I think the the kind of emotional state of being a teenager anyway, where, you know, you just like living for the day. I think I really understand how. It was, it was impossible at the time to locate what to do with that emotion. So, you know, I kind of just went mental, nuts, use a better word, it, in terms of having a slightly hedonistic response to my new situation. And I sometimes call it the death drive, you know. For myself, it's this like absolute sense of urgency to live life to the fullest and to grab every opportunity and to live and just soak up life. And I don't know if you've experienced this, Libby, but I know so many of our listeners will know what it's like to experience loss at different points. But that moment of not quite knowing what the hell to do, how to get through it, and feeling like the walls are disappearing somehow, there is nothing stable. There's nothing stable underfoot. There's nothing stable around you that you don't feel stable. And the environment that you're in doesn't feel stable. And somehow you find it in you to keep going. So I really do understand as you're talking and having lost friends to suicide too at an early age, I really understand the range and roller coaster of emotions that you're talking about. I think what's remarkable to me is that in this gift that you're giving to us and to the listeners, I guess is that actually in sharing and saying like, I don't know, I'm just figuring this shit out. I'm just figuring, trying to figure out a way through it. But in the midst of all of this challenge and despair that you can still find love and hope and joy for those moments that you spent with Sally and for Mm. the time that she gave you. Mm. And as you're smiling, because I know that you can, you say you feel her and you know that you shared that time. And I think it's really important that we can be connected to each other by saying, I lived this, I experienced this, I'm still here. I'm still figuring it out. And sometimes it feels shit. And sometimes it feels just about bearable. And in the midst of it, you are allowing us to share in our emotions by transferring some of it into the work. Mm. So the work is not about suicide as such, is no, it? No, 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 no. It's not about it. It's a starting point to explore just life, I suppose, life and death. But the joys and and just how it feels to be alive I suppose yeah and other there's moments of transcendence as well um yeah 
I think there's something really beautiful that I personally take from your work because you have this amazing ability, obviously, to move between incredibly um, complex worlds, but also um, making things accessible and appear to be slightly more simple so that we so that there's an entry point for us. Do you know, which is the most incredible gift of any artist is when we suddenly encounter something and we feel it in mm. lots of different layers. We feel it in our bodies. We feel it in our heart. We feel it in our head and we're processing it intellectually. So we're feeling it in a full somatic kind of experience mm. yeah. in artwork. And so I really understand how your work has expanded from drawing, painting, to sculpture, through to wearables and things that you can sit in and things that you can play. But everything is moving. Mm. There are no, everything is in, in a state of flux. Yeah, it's entangled. And the meanings and but it's, it's it's about sensations it's about people's audiences bodies being in the mm. space and how the bodies interact with the mind kind of entangling them both but i think it's it's about inviting people to experience things differently um not not necessarily intellectually or in fact hardly intellectually but really being moved um, by the sound as well and there's com little conversations between the different elements in the work. Um, yeah, the paintings, the sculptural furniture, the environment, everything. So, so I know it's yeah, I know it's early days, but you've been writing and journaling and mm. making drawings and paintings, all stemming from your personal stories and experiences. But you're actually making. Um, an exhibition out mm -hmm. of all yeah, of these works exactly, and yeah. uh, there's going to be VR works, right? So a the, VR work, yeah, 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 yeah. And so just in terms of how you take your ideas, everything that's inside your internal worlds, um, how would you express that to somebody that works with you? Because on this work, I think you are collaborating with some people to, to make it happen. Yeah, I'm working with Gabe Stones and uh, Flora Yin Wong is uh, working on the sound with me. Um, with a VR work, it's quite big, like as in there's a lot of moving parts. So you need, yeah, it's it's great to collaborate. Um, and so I'm doing actually instead of <laughs> I'm smiling because it's probably not how anyone ever makes a VR work, but I'm actually approaching it through painting, writing, painting, and drawing. Um, you can see some bits behind me here. Um, I'm treating each page of paper like almost like a mini world or a mini environment. And objects float around on the page through watercolour and text and little directions and emotion. And they all kind of swirl together. Um, I say it's like my brain. <laughs> and these are um what I'm um, giving to Gabe and Flora is to then interpret or then to bring into the VR work and into the sound so it's I think compared to like how I've been told other people make VR which is very like it's very much process driven we still don't know what it's going to look like 
Um, so I'm, I'm not working in a, like a designer where I'm like, this is what we're making, let's make this. It's very much like a creative, artistic way of working with something very, very digital in the end. Yeah. I think um, I would love for our audience to to come and see your work, Libby, because the work that's going to be shown um, from here, not only is it an incredibly um, transformational and transcendental work, transcendental work, but also um, the way, the process that you've made, if anybody ever gets a chance to see any of your drawings or paintings at any point, I think they're just gorgeous because they're a combination of your um, describing these kind of abstract worlds in text, in written, sort of on the page. And then you've got Mm -hmm. these beautiful watercolours that are Mm -hmm. kind of describing the environment and the atmosphere. Do you have something to hand? (gasps) Yeah. Wow, what a treat. So so for listeners, um, Libby's showing us a beautiful large, is that like an A3 or A2 size, um, like watercolour-y paper, A2? Yeah. And we've got what almost looks like a landscape. Um, and it, is it some kind, it's like a, a mind map in paint and uh, text. Um, and that's describing. Could you talk us through it? Yeah. So this is actually the visual proposal because the work is funded by Vive Arts. So it's, they've got quite a strict milestone process, which is totally fine. But rather than like render out, images I'm working with watercolor so in the background was like murky pinks and greens and purples and mauve um and then it says and this is like an instruction to Gabe skybox similar to start and hints of the greens and reds from awakening anger moment and then it says bird's eye view of space virtual space but angry rock forms dissolve into jelly bellies moving both left and right at the same time circling us wow and there's there's some green blobs and it says we are in the middle and we can still push for jelly bellies so it's not it's really not literal at all it's quite it's i mean i i love it as a work but it also reminds me of um kind of old maps you know when you zoom out and you're looking at a bird's eye view of things Mm. or like the most beautiful um um, drawings um, from uh, even cave drawings where, you know, you can see people making relationships between people and objects and things. Mm. These are almost like fingerprints, aren't they? Yeah. yeah. Moving across the page and then there's some black um, drawings of more like objects with a black pen. Um, and it's, you know, there's a bit of text, like maybe these bellies should be leaking to yeah, I see. different things. So you're sharing original artworks with the people that are working with you in order to make a virtual space, which I think is such a lovely way of getting to that result. And it it strikes me that there's something um, particularly, it's, it's unique to you in the way that you work, but there's also something about you Im- embedding emotion into the um, the virtual world and working with technology to bring a particular um yeah emotional space so that people can feel different when they're in that virtual space yeah i'm really interested in um like for instance in a previous work called ent i walked the whole world it was digital work it was an immersive environment so floor and wall projections 
but the whole world was um, made from watercolor painting. So it had, so, you know, I painted my studio, scammer paintings, sort of do some, you know, I don't know what you call it, but you know, like when you sort of get them ready to be into the, into the digital world, like adjust from da da da. And then like, um, so the whole thing doesn't look like it's necessarily built in a games engine, which is a technology people use to build computer games that like you might imagine something like Grand Theft Auto, which is really flashy. And that's typically what people think about as, as, as a um, work made with this technology. Whereas for me, it's, it's much softer. It's very emotional and it's really entangling like the physical and the digital. I just I just think like just because I'm, I work with digital or advanced technology, quantum computing, you can still have a very material practice even within that. And, I'm, mm. and, and, and my voice through the visuals and the emotions and the movement and everything in there is still coming across in, in my own way as opposed to just or working more with the, what's the default settings or with the game engine. Mm. Yeah. So Libby, you've had an extraordinary career so far. And there's so much left, obviously, for you to to do. And you have all these incredible things happening. Tell us a bit about what's in front of you at the moment. Yeah, so um, so this show that we've been talking about with, with uh, VR will be um, in London next February. I'm not going to say exactly where it is because I don't think we're able to announce it yet. Yes, fair days. But in February in London central London, uh, you come down. And then I am also working on a solo show for um, a space in Switzerland. Again, not been announced, so Mm -hmm. I can't share. But And then um, what else am I up to? There's so many different things, but um, really just keen to keep like combining the physical and digital together. So that I transport my audiences into a world that feels very magical and quantum and non-binary and fluid, but in the phys- using digital, but in physical space as well, not just on screens, and to move away from the screens and project onto glass and and other materials to create a reality that feels kind of strange and and communicates topics that I'm really interested in. Mm. Yeah. And for those people who want to find out more about your work and quantum, all things quantum, where could they find you on socials? So on socials, like um, I don't really like Twitter. Don't go there. Go to Instagram. And I do these like, I kind of uh, do these like reels, I suppose, where I tell people about what quantum is in an accessible way. And people people seem to like them. so yeah, your ed- educational um, content is amazing, and Thank so you. many people keep saying, you know, you need a channel all to yourself because you're brilliant at explaining again those really complex ideas. And I'm I'm curious about that generosity, Libby. You know, because I think I'm wondering whether what you've experienced yourself as a, a working class woman coming through science and through the art worlds. And let's face it, the science world and the art world have their tribes, right? They have their rules, they have their codes, and you've kind of mixed it up and done it your own way. So what advice would you offer firstly to your younger self, knowing what you know now? And secondly, to our audience that are trying to find and navigate their own way through things? 
Yeah, I think like I just in my younger self, I'd give myself a massive hug, mm. just like that touch, just like mm. and be like, yeah, be okay, just keep going, don't give up because you'll get to a place where you're doing what you love and feel really happy. Um, and then to the audience, it's like there's always a way. It's just it like because I've had so many dead ends, which we haven't really spoken about. But that's to be really clear, I've had so many times things haven't worked out for me, and I've had to go back and try again. But it's just that determination. I think if you know what you want to do, you just keep going. Mm-hmm. But you have, yeah, you just have to do that. And yeah, what resilience building tips have would you pass on that have helped you to keep going like I mean tell people what you need like so for my friends I'm like I really need to chill out or like just even saying like I really value your friendship like just making sure people know they're important to you Mm. so then you're you're tightening those bonds with the people who matter most like for me currently or like the last few years after Sally passed like things like just being like I know it's kind of cliched but it does work like being in nature walking my dog making sure I get enough sleep I mean don't get me wrong I went on loads of benders and all sorts after she went but like now I'm like more calm like just do therapy if you need to if you can afford it it's such a privilege but like like there's also free things you can do um just, just yeah, the basic stuff, eating well, exercising. Sounds really boring, but it actually does work. It yeah. does work. It does, it does work. work. And I'm glad that you shared that because I think so many creatives that I know and love and work with, you know, we live in our heads, right? So it's really important to reconnect with our bodies when we're carrying challenging things and when we're working through things in the world generally. So we have to unite both body and mind, don't we, to to build resilience. So thank you so much for being so honest and open with us and for sharing your experience, Libby. You're an absolute inspiration. And seriously, anybody who's listening, please check out Libby Heaney's work online and go and visit. There is uh, an amazing amount of generous joy and love in Libby and her work. And the fact that she wants to educate and share with you guys, I think is incredibly important. So if there's one thing I hope you take away from it is that actually we really do get there together and we're stronger together. So thank you, Libby. It's been such a pleasure and a privilege to talk to you. Thanks so much, Kerry. Like, yeah just what you say makes me so like that's so nice and i'm really hum- like feel humbled by it it's a pleasure to talk to you today thanks for having me thanks so much please follow and share the podcast it helps us to support more brilliant creatives like you recommend future guest suggestions in your reviews they might well become part of our show thanks for being part of our creative community until next time mm-hmm.